Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 133. Today is our annual wrap-up on the director of the year, who in 2022 was John Ford. By the time you hear this, you actually probably will know who our director of 2023 is, because I think this is going to release at the very beginning of 2023. But today, like we did last year when we spoke about Rainer Werner Fassbender with Andrew Groves, my friend Andrew Groves, who was responsible for introducing me to Rainer Werner Fassbender and knows everything about Fassbender. Today, I am honored to be talking with my friend, Secret Movie Club blog writer, Bon Vivant, movie maker, hardcore rep theater attendee, and over the year I learned probably the most passionate person who was coming to John Ford films, because you've been to almost all of them, Patrick McElroy. Patrick, thank you for being on the pod. Pleasure to be on. You know this, probably. Patrick has already done some of the Defend This movies. Most famously, people keep coming up to me and they're like, so you don't like La Ventura, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Patrick uh, and I did, and I was... I do not like La Ventura. And Patrick was like, I'm going to make you defend that stance because La Ventura is a stone cold international classic. And then uh, Patrick and I also talked about late period Scorsese, which was a lot of fun. And Patrick and I also share an Irish Catholic background and a faith and a love of John Ford. So I just thought, and whenever we would do uh, John Ford movies, you would often be like, did you know this? And I'd be like, I don't know that. (laughs) That just uh, happened uh, at our last John Ford uh, screening. We did uh, My Darling Clementine and Upstream, and Patrick was just talking to me. It was on Veterans Day or near Veterans Day, and Patrick was pointing out that My Darling Clementine was filled with vets. Uh, who had just returned from World War II. And anyway, enough of that, blah, 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 blah. Today, it's a bit different than our format in that we are going to talk about filmmaker John Ford and go wherever the conversation goes and God willing, do honor to the old man. That's really the point of this podcast. And if you don't know about John Ford, we hope you'll just listen to us talk and name check some movies and check out some movies. If you do know about John Ford, we hope that we bring some interesting stories that you haven't heard before and everybody in between. So before I go further, uh, Patrick, anything you want to say to to kick off the pot? Just seek out John Ford. Watch movies influenced by him. Read director's comments about him. He is one of my two or three favorite directors up there with Scorsese and Fellini. You know what all three of those directors have in common, don't you? (laughs) What? You want to take a guess? They're Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever put that together? Oh, of course, yeah. (laughs) But my other two uh, in my top five would be Orson Welles and Michael Powell, so the Protestants are there. (laughs) Hey, Editor Connor here, just jumping in to let you know that this Saturday, January 7th, we are doing a double feature, our first in our uh, Alfred Hitchcock The Master series. Hitchcock is our director of 2023. We are showing both versions of The Man Who Knew Too Much, the Peter Lorre starring one and the Jimmy Stewart starring one. Uh, And then we also, this upcoming Wednesday, January 11th, do have another secret filmmaking workshop, but that is sold out. So, uh, sorry. As always, though, please go to secretmovieclub.com to see our season. You can always write us, good, bad, or ugly, at community at secretmovieclub.com. We do have two full-time Secret Movie Club team members who check those emails daily and get back to you. So that's the best way to reach out to us. You know, the whole point of Secret Movie Club is to be a community of movie makers and movie lovers. And we just hope that we do that, whether you're attending movies or workshops or making movies that we're showing at our short film festivals or listening to these pods or whatever. We 
are wrapping up, or by the time the audience hears this, we will have wrapped up our John Ford uh, series. We tried to do some deep dives. Patrick, you've seen everything we've done and more. I know because you and I talk. Uh, and again, audience, we sort of imagine you know this. So so I don't want to tell you stuff you know, but I, I still feel in the interest of good radio and good podcasts. John Ford was born, there are several ways that he said his name was, but he was actually born Sean Aloysius Ofini or John Ophirna, or he was not born John Ford. He was born in 1894 in Maine. He is one of the American pioneer filmmakers. He's the generation basically after D.W. Griffith, after Charlie Chaplin, after Mary Pickford, after Douglas Fairbanks. You would probably call John Ford the second wave of pioneer filmmakers. He was not necessarily making movies in the 19... He was, uh, actually, he was a very young man in 1918, 1919, 1920 when he came out to Hollywood. He started directing one-reelers, and he really came to prominence in 1924 with his movie The Iron Horse. And he saw, he's sort of the wave of Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Howard Hawks, all of these filmmakers who started to make movies in the silent era, but really blossomed at the cusp or the transition of sound of like silent to sound. And then they really dominated the thirties and the forties. And then they continued to make movies in the fifties and the sixties. And what makes Ford so important, like you just said, Patrick, John Ford is one of my top three directors. My other two are Jean Renoir and Akira Kurosawa, uh, who I've said, they're my Trinity. And then my four and five, it's funny what you were saying. I've always thought about this. I think my four is probably Fassbender and my five is tough but I may have to say Murnau because of how important Last Laugh and Sunrise are to me. They're so important, in fact, that I put them as five, even though it's only two movies. But you've never seen Faust or City Girl. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. If I had to slot someone into that fifth spot who I've seen a lot, a lot of their work, it's a tough one. It might be Hitchcock. It might be Spielberg, if I'm being honest with myself. It might be Bergman. It might be Fellini. It might be Scorsese. I, it's like tough for me. So John Ford, he's like the director's director. What's really interesting is that when you talk to directors around the world, it's not uncommon that one of the filmmakers they're going to name check is John Ford. The genre he's most associated with is the Western. In the same way that Akira Kurosawa, most people, if they're not cineasts or whatever, they make, oh, the guy who makes the samurai movies, maybe. Or Hitchcock, they might be like, oh, the guy who made Psycho. So Ford was known for his Westerns. And those were, he has a famous quote, when in doubt, make a Western. But Ford like Kurosawa, like Jean Renoir, made movies in every genre. And many of his greatest films have nothing to do with the Western. Grapes of Wrath is an adaptation of the John Steinbeck novel about Okies who migrate in the 1930s to California. How Green Was My Valley is about Welsh miners. The Quiet Man is a dream of Ireland. And so Ford made a lot of movies that were not Westerns, but he's known for the Western. Nevertheless, the Ford bangers, when people talk about Ford, they're almost always going to mention The Informer, Stagecoach, Young Mr. Lincoln, How Green Was My Valley, My Darling Clementine, The Cavalry Trilogy, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Searchers, of course. The Quiet Man I was going to end on. The Searchers, because The Searchers is now routinely voted, at least if you go by BFI's Sight and Sound poll, 
The Searchers is almost routinely in the top 10 films of all time. Coyote to Cinema, also an AFI to... Hitchcock gets Vertigo. Renoir usually gets Rules of the Game or Grand Illusion. And Ford gets The Searchers. That movie has not fallen out of grace. And The Searchers really is name-checked even to this day by people who didn't even like Ford, like Tarantino, who now, Patrick was saying, is coming to a sort of Ford appreciation. A little bit. A little bit by name-checking Searchers because it was such a complicated and still such a complicated movie. But Spielberg and Scorsese name-check Searchers. Everybody named. I mean, John Milius, Paul Schrader, Pedro Almodovar. George Lucas. They all call out Searchers. So I've always said this, but I think this is really, really important. And again, no BS, no tribalisms, no me just trying to force my theory on the audience, which is BS anyway. It's a film is subjective. F.W. Murnau made a movie called Sunrise, and John Ford saw Sunrise and wrote an article and went to everybody and said, everyone has to see this movie because they both worked at Fox. And Ford actually got to see rushes from Sunrise and see a cut before anyone else saw it. And immediately Ford changed his style. And we've now seen movies pre-Sunrise and they're totally Fordian. But the missing ingredient of the secret sauce is a kind of German expressionist influence which immediately after Sunrise, you see in Ford. Suddenly the sets are deep, there's deep focus. And not just Ford, but also King Vidor with the crowd. Compare that to a movie of his like The Big Parade. You see more shadows and you see more camera moves, unlike that movie. And I think you see more depth of field. You see more sort of sets are being built differently. You see this idea of making the internal external through the tools of cinema. And then what happened was that people like Akira Kurosawa, Igmar Bergman, Federico Fellini saw Ford, and they were hugely influenced. They all named Chuck Ford as one of the greatest directors of all time. And then you get people like Spielberg and Scorsese who named Chuck Ford and then also named Chuck Bergman, Fellini, Kurosawa. And then, you know, you get the people who saw Spielberg and Scorsese. You can name whoever, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson. Or David Fincher. Pedro Almodovar. So there's this almost a DNA, a bloodline that you have to acknowledge John Ford is a huge, he's like the great grandfather. If Murnau is one of the great grandfathers, Ford is like the great grandfather of the grandfather. That's why I would argue you need to see John Ford for that through line. Well, let's just start. Why is John Ford one of your top three favorite directors? Oh, well, I just love the sense of community, that sense of Catholic, democratic sense of community in his movies, how he uses those very wide shots to show multiple people, show an interconnectedness versus a more uh, Protestant filmmaker like uh, Howard Hawks or just the Protestant idea in America that America is founded on of individualism. Ford's sense of community is very refreshing in that sense. A lot of the Republican Party is formed by Protestantism, where a lot of the Do Democratic want to Party entire is... <laughs> You're putting targets on us, homie. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I'll just say a lot of the <laughs> Democratic Party is uh, formed by Catholics, so there's that wonderful sense of community and common good. In Ford's film. But in fairness, Christianity is based on, you can't, I, we shouldn't make that divide. Well, I Protestants mean, emphasize more individualism, you know, some, every man for do. himself, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Yeah, but remember, we also have to acknowledge we got people like Sean Hannity, you know, and Bill O'Reilly. Well, they're more influenced by the Americanism, which is influenced by Protestantism. But they're like, they call themselves Catholics. Yeah, and... but really they're more Americans first. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, keep going, keep going. Connor, I leave it uh, to your judiciousness on what you keep in here. We also have a horrible abuse scandal, man. Also abuse scandals in the public schooling system and Buddhism and Judaism. So That's there's it. abuse everywhere. Yeah, but we got a horrible I one. just love his use of the wide shot. When I was uh, starting to make movies, my impulse was close up. And in Elia Kazan's talk with AFI, he came from theater and when he was starting to make movies, his impulse would have been close-up. And I was 15 when I read this, but John Ford taught him to rely on medium shots. So in a sense, you become the editor when you watch his movies versus today where it's just close-up, 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 close-up. Ford lets you observe things. He lets you decide where you want to look. So his films are worth returning to over and over again. One of my favorite scenes in all the film history that I tried to capture in short films I've made and I will try to capture in feature films I made is the wonderful breakfast scene early on in the movie of The Searchers where it's just one shot, no close-ups, and it's sort of a morning ritual of everyone gathering together. The Reverend played by Ward Bond comes in and it's just a number of voices going on at once, sort of overlapping, not quite in the uh, Howard Hawks way, but just observing all these different faces and all these different body languages. One of the most refreshing scenes in all of film history. Another great scene I love is in a 1961 film, Two Road Together. I don't know if you've shown that one. No, that was one. Yeah, I would show it's, it for the shot at the river. A, but. Yeah, it's a flawed film, but there's a wonderful scene where it is Richard Widmark and James Stewart. It's about a half hour into the movie, these are two characters who've known each other for a long time and they're familiar with each other. And it's just one shot, no cuts, Jimmy Stewart telling a story about a girl. You almost feel you're there in that atmosphere watching it. Like that shot influenced Scorsese in Mean Streets. That's one I've all, I also, uh, when I was in uh, my senior year of high school, I did a short film called Auteur Styles where I introduced different um, direct, like I did an homage to Max Ophuls where I did... Uh, I had a dolly at my high school. And, you did a tribute um, to Max Ophuls in your high school? Yeah, wow. uh, my senior year, yeah. Yeah, and I sort of presented a long take through the hallway of two students, two of my classmates walking, and then I did a short film. One of them was Hitchcock, of course. That was the obvious one. But one I did was John Ford, where we just, during class, uh, I was in a video class, so during that period we could go film wherever we wanted to. I wanted to do an homage to John Ford, I went out to sort of the PE field or that, and I had uh, them go at a distance, stand at a fence, one stand at one side, one stand at the other side, and I did a long shot of the horizon at the lower part of the frame. Then I did a sort of symmetrical shot of the two of them talking to each other. Just one shot, no close-up, and they were talking about a elderly woman they knew who died. So it was melancholy. It was even gray that day, gray skies that day, so it was perfectly fitting. I think you're on to something, because you're absolutely right. Ford would try to carry a lot of scenes in one shot, and it would really be the choreography, not the editing, that would create the dynamism of the cinema. That's very famously Fordian. And I think there's something to what you're saying about it being democratic, too. I think that's a great way of looking at it. I would say, though, that to me, Ford's artistry is so transcendent that often you, you kind of knew where to look. It's not as if you were like, oh, I just missed something. If you look at Ford's choreography in those shots, I'm always blown away by 
I'm always looking roughly where I need to be looking. Now, when I come back to the shot, you're absolutely right. Like something that always blows me away. That's always, there's always a bit of business in the background that the first time you're focusing on the main A story. And then once you know the story, your eye can kind of drift. And there's always like a little funny thing where someone will tap someone or someone will laugh or someone will like pour themselves a drink or someone will steal something or you, there's always these like little bits of business that are so rich. But one of the things for me that I'm always blown away by by Ford, and I think that Wells and then Spielberg are, in my opinion, the best practitioners of this. I can't think of anyone better than John Ford, who really is the master. Kenji Mizoguchi does wonderful master shots in his movies with deep focus. That, and Renoir. But what I mean is, you know when you see other directors and they do a one -er, this is so audience, when we talk about a one-er, we're talking about a, a scene where there's no editing, by which we mean no cut to close-up, no cut to cutaway. It is literally a scene that's covered in a shot. I think most people or most filmmakers, you kind of notice at a certain point, oh, this is still the same shot. Or it's being dynamic because the camera is sort of going everywhere. The most obvious example of this, I think in a good way, is Scorsese's Copacabana shot in Goodfellas. Yeah, or Orson Welles' opening to Touch of Evil. Which are great oneers. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're exhilarating. But the Ford, Wells, Spielberg oneer, where someone has to point out to you, like, hey, let's go back and watch. Did you know that that scene was just one shot? You know, I remember I had to see Poltergeist, and no disrespect to Toby Hooper, but I had to see Poltergeist three times or four times before that scene in the hallway, before they opened the door, which Toby Hooper never did a shot like this. So it has to have been Spielberg. But that shot where they're all in the hallway before they open the door, you're like, that shot was four minutes. Someone has to point out to you that you never notice it because of the Spielbergian way that he's choreographing the actors. And in Orson Welles, I always point out the touch of evil shot in the middle of the movie where they find the dynamite. I always love to point out to people. I don't like to point it out at first because I don't think you should point it out. But in Citizen Kane, the rosebud sequence where you, well, I don't mean to give it away. Hopefully you've seen Citizen Kane, but where they cut back to Kane as a boy in the snow. And then it comes through the window, pulls back when she's basically signing away her son to a guardian, to the banker. And that's all one shot. The story goes that Toland had just shot Grapes of Wrath and Long Voyage Home. And then he went to work with Wells and he said, you got to do it like Ford. And even Toland, who had worked with William Wyler and other people, had never done it this way. But supposedly Toland's mind was blown at how Ford was able to carry scenes and wonders without anyone ever knowing. And I guess Toland's advice to Wells was try to do it this way because you can actually edit in the wonder by your position and placement of people. So if someone comes to the camera, that's your close-up. If someone moves about three paces back, that's your medium shot. I just think that that's a legacy of Ford that people have to understand that almost no one could do it like Ford that way. You were talking about your high school movie. Sorry, I just wanted to oh, yeah, yeah. wax rhapsodic about wonders. Uh, yeah. I also, uh, in the video, I was presenting the movies, sort of like how uh, Scorsese presents uh, movies. I was mentioning the... Spielberg's story of The Horizon, which has always stayed with me, about when he met John Ford. Which is now immortalized in The Fablemans, right? Yes, yes, yes. With David Lynch playing John Ford. Uh, spoiler alert. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite of the year. That story always stayed with me because I would take photos with my iPhone and that, and I would always, as a teenager, I would always remember The Horizon has to be at the top of the frame or the bottom of the frame. And I remember that from uh, Peter Bogdanovich's 2006 documentary uh, directed by John Ford, which I saw at the age of 15 and really loved. 
You should tell that story because a lot of people may not go see the Fablemans for whatever reason. So Spielberg, other than Bogdanovich, is the only one who got to meet John Ford. He was uh, just out of high school and he was told to wait for him. And Ford came in and he was covered in uh, lipstick kisses and the secretary had to go uh, wash him off. And uh, he went into Ford's office. Ford uh, said to Spielberg, so you want to be a picture director? Spielberg said, yeah. Well, go to that picture over there. Tell me what's in the frame there. And uh, Spielberg responded, oh, those are two men on a horse. No, no, no. Where's the horizon? Oh, it's at the lower part of the frame. Then he also did it with the other picture, too. And Ford responded, that's picture directing there, where the horizon is. It needs to either be at the bottom or the top. If it's in the middle, it's boring. And then he told him, now get the f*** out of here. (laughs) (laughs) I know that when people tell that story, it seems intuitive. But what do you think Ford was trying to communicate to Spielberg? Because it actually is a really important lesson. It's about what's in the frame. It's about how you frame something. That's a part of being director, getting your vision across. Not so much what you're capturing, but how you capture it. Right. It's a quintessential characteristic of a great director. And I don't mean to knock these directors. There are many filmmakers that you see, and I love their movies, I want to be clear, but they do what's called coverage, where the standard way to shoot, if you're not a natural director, you get a master, then you get a two-shot, which is two people a little closer, then you get an over-the-shoulder, an over-the-shoulder, which is your over-the-shoulder of an actor, over-the-shoulder of the other actor, and then you get a straight-up, close-up, close-up. And that allows an editor to craft a scene and just kind of go between these different shots. But it's a very, it takes a long time to shoot, and it can kind of feel anonymous style-wise. The three directors that stay with me whenever I want to do a conversation sequence are Ford, Hitchcock, and Scorsese, Mm. because Hitchcock's very interesting. Uh, When you watch the um, conversation sequence between Anthony Perkins and Janet Leigh in Psycho, it's very interesting to watch that editing there because he doesn't do the typical over-the-shoulder uh, close-up, close-up. So it's the weird low angles yeah, of the birds. but he'll also do a close-up at one moment, then he'll do a wide shot next. But Ford just does those wonderful shots of two people talking. But when he cuts to close-up... It's a very emotional sequence. Yeah, we, we just did Stagecoach on 35, and in that scene where the baby's born in the middle, and Dallas comes out with the baby... And she says, it's a girl. Suddenly it cuts to a close-up of John Wayne looking at Dallas. And Dallas is a prostitute and John Wayne is an outlaw. But they, they both have hearts of gold. And then it cuts to Dallas. And you know without any dialogue that John Wayne has just fallen in love with her. Because John Ford withheld the close-ups until that moment. So the close-ups communicate something emotionally and psychologically that transcends what's being said at that moment. In uh, The Searchers, John Wayne's character for most of the movie is the only character who has any close-ups. You really see this descent of this man. My first encounter with John Ford was when I was uh, 12, my uh, dad showed me The Godfather, and that got me into movies. That just instantly turned me on and I realized the power of what movies could be and I was 12 and a half in early 2008 that's when I first saw it then I told myself yeah I'm gonna make movies my dad kind of thought oh you could maybe do movies what a cool uh, for dad. About a year. yeah and then for about a year and a half thinking about movies and mostly just contemporary movies but then I was in class one day in late April of 2009 just drifting off and I realized 
I want to make movies, I need to know my film history just as well as Scorsese does. And this was a month before I turned 14. I basically started traditional with AFI's top 100 American movies, just like learning the alphabet. Start with the traditional well-known movies. Right, yeah, yeah. And so I started basically with Frank Capra a little. Then I moved towards George Cukor and uh, some Hitchcock and a little bit of Billy Wilder. But my first was uh, Stagecoach in uh, September of 2009. In November of... That year, I watched The Searchers. I was just mesmerized by it. It was instantly one of my favorites. Just so taken in by the atmosphere of that movie, the piercing colors, and John Wayne's obsession. This classic American figure, this classic American wasp that Ford had built up since Stagecoach. You see him as this kind person in Stagecoach, but here, John Wayne's character is openly a racist. Borderline psychotic. Yeah, but he, you see him at this movie, you see a little bit of compassion in him, and then just this descent into obsessiveness. Since I have attention deficit disorder, I've always been drawn to that narrative of, of obsession. That and Vertigo and Raging Bull are three movies that I've obsessed over where you watch this descent of this one man. Very similar to Melville's Captain Ahab. So six months later in May, I rewatched the movie again. And then six months later in November of 2010, I watched it again. I think I watched it 12 times throughout high school and I've seen it. Wow. So Searchers was your for 22, 23 times in my life. I often see it twice a year, but in the last year, I've just shortened it down to one time. And I'm really looking forward to this screening next month because it will have been a year since I've seen it. Because there is that work of art that comes along. There are those works of art that come along at your most formative time when you're 14 and 15 that influence you and the way you look at the world. I think it's very interesting that Scorsese, I would read interviews and watch interviews of him, that he was also, he turned 14 the year he saw The Searchers, and he had just graduated middle school. Him and his friends went to go see it at the Criterion Theater in New York. And just the impact it had on him. What the audience should know, if you haven't seen The Searchers, is it's actually surprisingly late period. Usually filmmakers' greatest films tend to be early in their careers or middle of their careers. John Ford, the, the movie everyone holds up as his masterpiece, he made relatively late in his career in 1954 when he was about uh, 60 years old. 62. It's about... A man, Civil War veteran, Confederate veteran, Ethan yeah. Edwards, who secretly loves his sister-in-law. The sister-in-law and his brother's uh, family, they're attacked by Native Americans, Comanches. Comanches, who steal his niece. And the title, The Searchers, refers to his obsessive search for his niece. It's clear that he's ragingly racist against Native Americans. And he has a uh, someone who goes with him, Jeffrey Hunter, who is half Native American. Yeah, his adopted nephew. But he always says, don't call him uncle. Don't call me uncle. Because of his racism. Yeah, and he always calls him blanket head. And you get this fear in the movie, and he's pretty open about it, that when he finds his niece, if he finds that his niece has basically been absorbed into the Comanche culture, he's just going to kill her. Well, don't spoil too much of the movie. Oh, no, no, I won't. But I mean, this is sort of the driving force of the film. 
And what I wanted to ask you is that one of the raging debates about The Searchers is, is the movie about racism or is it racist? Oh, the former. It's very much about racism. Well, how do you how do you say that when people are like, this movie seems to be totally anti-Native American? No, no. Really, John Wayne's character of Ethan Edwards is the most vile character in the movie. He's the most violent. And he doesn't learn any lessons in the movie. He doesn't learn to be a better person. And a lot of white savior narratives that you see in movies like um, The Defiant Ones from Stanley Kramer, which came out two years later, Tony Curtis, of course, learns to be the better person. Right, yeah, yeah, where, yeah. Or like In the Heat of the Night yes, or yes. something, yeah. <laughs> where John Wayne's character, you see him at first and you love him. He is the typical American hero. But then there are things about him that you like in the movie, much like how we look up to people like uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, how we idolize these people. But there's an ugly racism behind them, much similar to uh, elderly relatives that we might have had. So in a sense, the movie is an examination of America's ugly past, America's ugly psyche. I understand what people are saying when they're weirded out by the movie because there are some really weird scenes. Like there's that scene where they see the women who have been with Comanches and they seem like shell-shocked or or ghosts. But that's because they've seen massacres done by white people, so it's really more... Well, but but I think you have to be careful. I think you you don't want to be too revisionist. And here's what I'm saying. You don't have to agree with me. I think the thing that's interesting about... And I love The Searchers. I think The Searchers is a stone-cold masterpiece. But I think what's important to me is you can't look at The Searchers through a 2022 lens. That's unfair. Because if you do that, then you're saying people are going to watch our movies. God willing, you and I get to make movies. And 100 years from now, in you know, 21, 22 or whatever, they're going to be watching our movies. And they're going to say, well, you know, they weren't quite there yet you know there, there are some things that you and i aren't even aware of in our sensibilities that are going to be outdated in a hundred years kind of thinking is called presentism which is just as dangerous as nostalgia exactly which i agree with 100 percent. but if you look at the searchers through the prism of a 1956 lens that movie is wildly progressive because the thing that i would point out to people is you're not paying attention to the movie if you don't pay attention to it at the beginning of the movie or near the beginning john wayne does this horrible thing where he desecrates a native american body by Oh, shooting yeah. its shooting eyes his out. eyes because he can't enter the spirit land he can't enter if the... he shoots him in the eyes. And what John Wayne has done is the ultimate insult to Native Americans. And he says, well, by what you believe, that means nothing. But by what that Native American believes... He's got no eyes. He can't enter the spirit land. He has to wander forever between the winds. And the final shot of the movie is of John Wayne unable to enter a house, walking back into the, you know, the, one it's of the most America's famous... unapologetic nature... He doesn't apologize for anything he's done. He just stands his ground, and but he has nowhere to go. But he's in, but well, I would go further. I think John Ford is very intentionally equating what he did to the Native American at the beginning of the movie to what he's done to himself. And he can now not enter the home. He can't be part of a family. He can't enjoy any of the things that had he not been racist, had he not been the way he was, maybe he could enter the home. He has to wander forever between the winds. He has to. See, I'm going to cry because I'm actually very sensitive. John Ford explicitly says that Wayne's transgressions, Ethan Edwards' transgressions, condemn him to wander between the winds. And anybody who doesn't see that in the movie isn't understanding the message of the film. No. Because who does get to go back in? All the other characters. Jeffrey Hunter, 
who is half a Native American, Natalie Wood, who spent time with the Comanches, and many of the other Native Americans are all treated sympathetically. They all get to be part of family. They all get, they have not sinned. He's the classic American driven by individualism. Who, because he has repudiated forgiveness, he's repudiated mercy, he's repudiated egalitarianism, he is condemned. And it is, to me, a scathing criticism of that kind of behavior. Oh, yeah. No, I've seen that movie... Uh, so many times. And I remember when I was in high school, I was asked to write a paper uh, about a character from fiction that has influenced you. And uh, you I wrote, wrote about, about Ethan it. Edwards. Yes, I wrote about <laughs> Ethan Edwards. Uh, but then a year and a half later, I saw Taxi Driver for the first time. Which is Ethan Edwards in a taxi. Yeah, but very interesting. There's a lot of similarities between the two movies. The Searchers came out in 1956, a year before the Vietnam War started, before America got involved. And then Taxi Driver came out in 1976, the year after the Vietnam War ended. Isn't it crazy to think that the time difference between Taxi Driver and The Searchers would be the same time difference as the movie now and like Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? Oh, yeah. The Afghanistan War. The Afghanistan <laughs> Both War. Both movies are uh, written by uh, Protestant writers. Uh, of course, the book uh, is by uh, Alan LeMay, of course, is a classic American Protestant so he's the traditional American. And Taxi Driver is written by Paul Schrader, who comes from a Dutch Calvinist background. So he also is the classic American because the Dutch are the first Americans to come here. Which, just total side note, and I love Schrader. Uh, first Reformed is one of my favorite movies of the last few years. Uh, I think a stone-cold 21st century classic. But what you're talking about, that austere, whatever that is, you, you know, I'm going to call it, there's an austere, spare... You know, you were talking about pull it up by your bootstraps. Yeah. I feel on the outside of that. So I think the great thing about Taxi Driver is that, or maybe The Searchers, is it's a marriage of two totally distinct sensibilities. But they both kind of reject their uh, writings are a critique of America. And both movies are from Catholic filmmakers. Uh, John Ford, of course, is the child of Irish Catholic immigrants. And he's the youngest in a family. Scorsese is the grandchild of Italian Catholic immigrants. So you get the next generation there. And he's also the youngest in a family. So there's that outsider vibe to both movies. Taxi Driver, of course, is also about a war veteran who's on a losing side, the Vietnam War. Who becomes obsessed with extricating yeah, a but, girl. Uh, they both have their failed loves for a classic American wasp girl. Uh, for Ethan Edwards, it's his sister-in-law. For Travis Bickle, the protagonist of Taxi Driver, it is Sybil, Sybil Shepherd's Shepherd, yeah. Betsy. And he then becomes obsessed, with, after that fails, he becomes obsessed with rescuing a young woman, a young girl, played by Jodie Foster, who's also a classic American wasp. Sort of a mirror image of Sybil Shepherd, blonde hair, blue eyes, light skin, pretty, similar to how... Ethan Edwards is after the daughter, who is the repeated image of the mother. Both movies, you see this sort of descent into uh, the madness of both characters, and they both erupt in violence at the end. Those were kind of the movies that showed me how I can take the influence from something and create it into my own also. There's this thing about Ford, either you go for it or you don't. I've heard as not as many, but I've heard a number of filmmakers I really respect. John Carpenter, Quentin Tarantino, 
a lot of others who just don't like Ford. Well, no, uh, Carpenter does like Ford. He just has some issues with him as a filmmaker. Well, but but let's just talk about those issues. The, the issues that are often leveled against Ford are that he always has a, a dance sequence in his movies. There's always a lot of like a drunk Irish character who is played for humor because they're just an alcoholic drunk Irishman. <laughs> some people find it to get a little too much that it's always family, God, community. A lot of people feel the stories make themselves up a little bit as they go along. They don't feel that Ford is as rigorous a narrative filmmaker. These are just, I'm not saying I agree with this, but these are sort of the things leveled against Ford, that Ford tends to be about the grace note and the emotion and the community. And these are things that other people, you know, if you're on that wavelength, great. But if you're not on that wavelength, like John Carpenter would be like, oh, not another dance sequence. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody is dancing. What I wanted to throw out there though, is that I always understand when people say that, like, you know, I've said this many times, I'm not on certain filmmakers wavelengths that other people love. And I will watch that filmmaker and say, oh, I get why people love that filmmaker. I get Devil's it. Devil's advocate. Oh, is that what's that? No, I'm just saying you're taking like the devil. Yeah, devil exactly. Right now. And what I'm saying is that there'll be filmmakers that everyone else is. How could you not like them? And I'll say, look. I get it. I, I really, but it's, I'm not on their wavelength. But Ford, I was on his wavelength immediately. And I think if you're on the Ford wavelength, what I wanted to throw to you is, I think something that I always try to communicate to people is there are many movies that get made that are enjoyable, that are great, but what you see is kind of what you get. It's one-to-one. -one. You watch the movie. It's a fun. It's entertaining. It, it's a joy. But when you watch a Ford movie, my argument would be, they're incredibly profound and deep. There's a humanism to them. And I think that there are very few filmmakers. I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but I put Kurosawa up there. I'd put Renoir up there. I'd put Spielberg up there. Satyajit Ray. Satyajit Ray. Absolutely. I put him up there. Who seem to truly love people. Who seem to truly love community. Who seem to truly believe that groups of people can do things bigger than themselves and that there is something profound about understanding the power, but at the same time, they see the good and the bad. They see what's good about what society can do and then they see the hypocrisy. And so what I wanted to throw to you, take it where you will, when you see movies like Stagecoach or Young Mr. Lincoln or Fort Apache or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, in the most beautiful way, they celebrate society and they criticize society at the same time they celebrate what a group of people can do together like how green was my valley or grapes of wrath and they critique at the same moment when you think about those films grapes of wrath celebrates the jode family's endurance and it critiques a society that allows the jode family to be kicked off their land when you look at stagecoach it celebrates what a group of people in the stagecoach can do and it criticizes the hypocrisy of class and society that looks down on people like Dallas and Ringo. When you look at the man who shot Liberty Valance, it celebrates that Tom Donovan is helping the West get one in a way. And at the same time, that society totally forgets about him as it gets tamed through Jimmy Stewart's uh, Tom Donovan. So what about that Ford ability to celebrate America and criticize America or be clear-eyed about America at the exact same time. How is Ford able to do that? Well, I don't feel his movies are as much a celebration of America. I think he just celebrates people more. But he believes in America. Yeah, well, somewhat. But 
Uh, well, I, wait, 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 and then I'm going to shut up. I mean, John Ford believes in the American experiment. Yeah, well, he kind of did early on in his career, but I feel with movies like uh, Fort Apache and The Searchers, Two Road Together. Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Yeah, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and Cheyenne Autumn. He becomes more critical of America. Sergeant Rutledge. When he sees the civil rights movement and he sees so much that goes on, he then becomes a little more critical of America, but he celebrates people. He knows there's goodness in people, but often when people sort of rise to power, they get more drawn to worldly things than to what is more basing and what people need. I agree with everything you said, but somebody would not devote their later years to making movies, in my opinion, making movies like Fort Apache, which is one of my all-time favorites, even Wagon Master or Searchers or Liberty Valance or Cheyenne Autumn, if they didn't believe whether Ford would say it out loud or not, that he was, you know, Ford and Cheyenne Autumn was trying to put a spotlight to our treatment of Native Americans to change that treatment to change that understanding. Ford was making a movie like Ford Apache to put a spotlight on our horrible tendency to create heroes out of very flawed people. But a movie like Young Mr. Lincoln is a celebration of our greatest president, supposedly, who was able to keep the country together. And he's fighting that corrupt system early on in the movie, defending the young man against the murder. Right, right. So I look, I understand what you're saying. And maybe I say this, maybe I'm exposing my bias, but I believe in America. I believe in the American experiment. And I, I think we're very flawed. And I think we're constantly, you know, I don't know how we elected Trump. That's going to be a stain on us for decades. But nevertheless, somehow the United States will pull out It will do these things that will surprise you. The United States will try to be more diverse. The United States will suddenly be like legalized gay marriage within five or 10 years. Suddenly everyone will be like, we can be better. We can do better. I feel like Ford embodied that. Yes, he did. So I do agree with that point. But then he becomes a little more critical of it in later years. But the 30s is more this hopeful decade with the Great Depression Hollywood movies are very hopeful, like Frank Capra movies. So there is more this innocence of spirit. But then after World War II, we lose a sort of innocence. His view becomes a little more cynical in later years. I see. I don't I disagree with that. I would say his view becomes darker and more skeptical. You know, I I was going to get to this later on, but. One of the things I really love about Ford, and, you know, who knows where I'm, I'm only 45. You know, Ford never lost his faith. So I think I find that very moving. You know, he saw the worst. He saw World War II, the Depression. He saw the Spanish flu also when he was 26. (laughs) Totally. And yet, you know, by all accounts, uh, you know, when he was in Palm Springs, he still was praying on his rosary and stuff. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, that's why I say I don't think he's cynical. I just find that very powerful for me. (laughs) with the audience is like wow let's talk about some of the fun ones like uh what do you think about a movie like the quiet man oh i love the quiet man it's just a wonderful color experience of course it being uh republic pictures a lot of those movies were shown in cinecolor at the time movies like william cameron menzies invaders from mars and nicholas ray's johnny guitar but no ford wanted to shoot it in technicolor and he beautifully captures the greens and the 
greens of the ground of Ireland in that movie and the blue skies and the gray clouds. It's one of my favorite Fords. And so what would you say about another criticism that gets leveled against Ford? And this actually criticism gets leveled against Spielberg. So I think it's really interesting to maybe pair them here is sentimentality, which is, you know, people will point to a movie like The Quiet Man or they'll point to a movie like How Green Was My Valley and they'll be like, ah, he was an Irish sentimentalist. I feel that like Frank Capra, he's honest about his sentimentality and he's genuine about it. Yeah, totally. There yeah, is it's sentimentality. Not, it's, his sentimentality is not cynical. No, there's sentimentality that is manufactured and you'll see that in Lifetime movies <laughs> and just so many horrible Oscar bait movies oh, that totally. come out every oh, year. Oh, the worst. Like, uh, I don't know, uh, Collateral Beauty six years ago with Will Smith or Life Itself four years ago. There are just those horrible... Oh, another one, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Movies that are just manufacturedly sentimental. But then, with a filmmaker like Frank Capra or uh, John Ford or sometimes William Wyler. Or Spielberg. Yeah, Spielberg or even um, someone like uh, Vittoria De Sica could get a little sentimental at times. He was pretty good, though. Yeah. I mean, what did he get? I mean, Umberto D and Bicycle Thieves are pretty unsentimental movies. Oh, no, he gets emotional and teary-eyed at moments. So there's... But there's a difference between emotion and sentimentality. Oh, okay, yeah, a little bit. So there is something very honestly sentimental. There's an honest sentimentality when watching one of their movies. I think you nail it. Spielberg really believes what he's making a movie about. Now, you may agree with the Spielberg worldview or not, but I think it's pretty hard to argue that he, he doesn't really believe what he's doing. And I think Ford was the same. You may, you may agree or disagree with the Ford emotion or the way he would end movies with the family or however, but I think he profoundly believed that. I think he profoundly believed in what he was doing. And I think that's the difference. Whereas what you said, like, I don't even see those because they almost seem like parodies to me where you see a clip and someone like is in a courtroom and the lights are blaring and then they like they hold up their hand and they're and you're like, oh, come on. I always love uh, Roger Ebert's review of Patch Adams back in 98. He said, I wanted to spray the screen with Lysol. It wasn't actually making us cry. It was extracting tears. <laughs> that's one of the worst movies ever made. But that's another conversation. Ford made 150 movies. Oh, yeah. And so we're not going to talk about all 150 in this podcast. So Informer, what are your thoughts? Oh, Informer is a masterpiece. Well, he had done some great movies like Aerosmith and Judge Priest. But I think that's the first true masterpiece he made of the sound era usually considered informers usually considered the first out and out ford masterpiece although i have to say now having seen some of the silent ones i would say three bad men for me is the first ford oh, masterpiece yeah, that is a great one but but informer very interesting to see his uh german expressionism influence there because the german expressionist style of dark lighting was common in the 20s but then when sound came around at the same time as the depression People wanted lighter, happier movies, uh, more escapist movies. So the only place where you really saw the German Expressionism influence in the 30s is in the Universal Monster movies like James Whale right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, Todd Browning. But it wasn't really until 1941, the year that um, Pearl Harbor was bombed, America would become more cynical and John Huston would do the Maltese Falcon. You see the German Expressionism influence. Also, Orson Welles did Citizen Kane. That same year, which would oh, be, yeah, yeah. even though not film noir, a template for film noir. So you see that German expressionism more common in the 40s and 50s than you do in the 30s. But 
Ford is one of the first American directors in the talking era to really use that German expressionist influence. Really, the German expressionist influence is the strongest in the informer to me. Also, uh, Prisoner of Shark Island has a lot of German expressionism influence in 1937, I think. And in Dynamite Picture. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a Shark Island fan, even though <laughs> there's like some racism in that one that's a little hard to deal with. But for people who don't know, the informer is this great story about a Irishman played by Victor McLaughlin who wants to get money somehow to go away with his sweetheart and turns in one of his best friends who's wanted by the British and who's part of the IRA. So it's one of Ford's Irish pictures. It all takes place over a night, and it was all shot on sets at RKO. So Ford really leaned into fog and German expressionism and light and shadow, and, and it, but it's just a dynamite movie. I love watching that picture. Oh, yeah. And it was the first movie that got John Ford a Best Director. It was first Best Director Oscar. Criterion, if you're listening, please release that movie on Blu-ray. It needs a Blu-ray release. And then Scorsese quotes The Informer in The Departed. Frankie, your mother forgives me <laughs> in that one scene. Then let's uh, jump to uh, Stagecoach. Thoughts? Oh, Stagecoach is a masterpiece. First time uh, doing a Western in the talking era because... Uh, the 30s, Westerns weren't really that big. There were the uh, sort of serials of Roy Rogers and... Um, oh, the singing cowboy, Gene Autry? Gene Autry, yeah, yeah, Gene Autry. So, I don't know, Westerns weren't really taken serious in the 30s, but Stagecoach is the first of the more adult Westerns. It's the first film to really look at It's usually at considered the first adult serious Western, right? Western, yeah. Of the sound era, as you said. It's a wonderful movie about just... A group of outsiders, immigrants, whores, and um, outlaws, and their humanity, their common humanity for each other. Drunks. Yeah, drunks also. <laughs> Ford had a soft spot for In drunks. this um, stagecoach and in this area, and you follow them throughout the movie. I should say alcoholics. You know, you talk about searchers, and stagecoach is the one that I watch once or twice a year. I'm obsessed with it. And I'm always blown away at how cyclical history is, because the banker— in that movie is the bad guy. Yeah, ultimately. And that's reflective of the Depression era. Right. But when you hear him talking, the banker who's played by Burton Churchill, right? Mm -hmm. uh, who was a Ford regular. John Ford was also known for just using the same actors again and again and again and again until they formed what was called the Ford Repertory Company. The Ford Stock Company. The Ford Stock Company. And one of the joys that Steven Spielberg would say is every time you saw a Ford film, would be like, who's he bringing back? <laughs> and it was almost always Ward Bond. Harry Carey Jr. John Quayle. John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Mother Jode. Come on, why am I blanking? Um, that is uh, Jane Darwell. Jane Darwell was always popping up in them. Hank Warden. Thomas Mitchell in a few. Jeffrey Hunter in three of them. And uh, Woody Strode later on. I mean, there's so many. But also Pa Jode. He was in Charlie Grape. No, he was in Tobacco Road. He was in My Darn. Henry Fonda. Holy moly, why we haven't talked about Fonda. Oh, yeah. Fond isn't like a ton of them. So you would see these uh, Ford movies and you'd be like, oh, there we go. There they are. To me, what always blows me away is that Ford was never shying away from his feelings about the times. And I think time has proven him right. When you see Stagecoach, that banker character who turns out to be this guy who steals all this money and who is criticizing everybody else and looking down at the prostitute, looking down at the outlaw, looking down on the alcoholic. 
he's spouting all this make America great again stuff. And you're listening. He's like, <laughs> America for Americans. That's what I say. And let the rich run the country because the rich really know what they're doing. And da, 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 da. And you're like, I heard this four years ago in 2016. Make America great again. Don't let the immigrants and da, 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 da. <laughs> and, and, you know, and Ford is pointing out and Dudley Nichols, the screenwriter, is pointing out. Remember that I always think about that Benjamin Franklin quote patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. When you hear somebody who's like, rah, 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 America, and it's these people, and what is it today? It's these Mexicans, it's these- There's always a scapegoat. There's always a scapegoat, it's the other. They're the ones who are keeping us from being great. And you hear that banker and stagecoach, and you're like, holy moly. Anyway, young Mr. Lincoln. Henry Fonda thoughts. Young Mr. Lincoln's wonderful. Very humble portrait of Lincoln when uh, Ford was making that movie. He told Henry Fonda, don't play him as the great messiah. Play him as a lawyer behind the desk. And that's exactly what young Mr. Lincoln, the movie, sets out to do. They don't present Lincoln as this grand scale figure. They treat him as this humble, everyday man. And one of the most moving sequences in the movie is when he... Uh, visits his first love at her grave. Anne Rutledge. Yeah, Anne Rutledge. It's just such a deeply moving scene of simplicity. The simplicity of Ford's films is something that I've always been moved by. It was that and uh, Italian neorealism that taught me as a teenager. Simplicity with deep emotion is better than complexity with shallowness. Oh, totally. I think one of the things we have to relearn is that simplicity is not a bad word. No, no. In fact, it's incredibly hard to be simple. Oh, yeah. And clear. That scene uh, is very interesting. And it goes back to a Catholic relationship with the dead of not forgetting them and still having that connection to them. I was about to say, and not feeling that they're really gone. No. I am a practicing Catholic, and I feel the dead in my life constantly. I don't know if I had had another worldview, but I dream about people who have passed. They come and they talk to me in my dreams. I have conversations with them. And you see that in Ford films where someone will visit a grave and that you see this all the time. Uh, she wore a yellow ribbon, my darling Clementine, I think Dr. Bowl or Judge Priest. And it's always a character who will sit down and speak to someone who's died and have a conversation that then helps them propel themselves forward in a tough decision or a moment. And I feel that. I feel the presence of those who have died in my life. They haven't left me. You feel that in Ford all the time. Speaking of which, what about Grapes of Wrath? One of my all-time favorite movies. Just a wonderful portrait of family and the hopefulness that needs to be kept alive during times of struggle. A wonderful uh, collaboration between Daryl F. Zanuck and John Ford. Uh, Zanuck would make some movies in the 40s and uh, some of the 50s that have this sort of reconciliation that was his style he liked to reconcile everything and tie it up at the end Elia Kazan didn't like it when he made uh, a gentleman's agreement and if you watch the original Nightmare Alley there is sort of a reconciliation at the end uh, from Edmund Goulding in 1947 that is kind of slapped on by the people who work for Zanuck Ford was a director who matched well with Zanuck and that movie, to me, is their shining example. Ford is such an oceanic topic that, that there's no way that a podcast can do justice to him. And this is more like a, a primer or an introduction than, you know. But you just brought up a thing. Ford, he was a, a director at Fox, 
and he be, he became one of Fox's uh, best directors, premier directors. And Daryl F. Zanuck ran Fox during Ford's incandescent period of the late 30s, early 40s. And that is one of the great director-producer relationships, I think, ever. Oh, yeah. Is somehow how Zanuck was able to keep Ford disciplined, but Ford was still able to express himself as a director beyond probably what Zanuck would have allowed any other director. And so the Ford Zanuck films that are the most pointed out are Grapes of Wrath, A Young Mr. Lincoln, How Green Was My Valley, My Darling Clementine. He kind of stopped working for Zanuck after My Darling Clementine. He did one more movie for Fox in 1952, What Price is Glory, with James Cagney, but that was the last one he did for Fox. He mostly went to... Warner Brothers. Paramount. Yeah, Paramount, United Artists. He was all over the place. He was like Jimmy Stewart. He was sort of on his own Yeah. after that. But anyway, people should watch the Zanuck-Ford collaborations because there's a narrative rigor that I think Zanuck was really good at that Ford was maybe that he wasn't, but there was an emotional humanity and transcendent cinema that Ford was good at that I can't really think of too many Zanuck-produced movies without Ford that they have. Oh, uh, well, he also worked well with Joseph L. Mankiewicz. In, uh, and I love Mankiewicz, but Mankiewicz is more of a prosaic director. Yeah. He's not a, he's not a poet. No, and Kazan's early movies at Fox are more just common social movies. They don't have uh, what he would pick up in the 50s, more of an independence. Yeah, 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 and I love Kazan. Oh, but Kazan's another topic. He's one of my top ten, but... Also very directly influenced by John Ford. We got to talk about, yeah, and, and weirdly Kazan picked up a Ford picture. Ford was fired off a pinky, and then Kazan finished it. So moving on, How Green Was My Valley? Oh, I love How Green Was My Valley. A beautiful, emotional, sentimental movie. Very personal for Ford because the movie is about the youngest child in a family, and that was Ford because he had adult siblings. and He was, he was one of like seven or eight, yeah, right? Yeah, and he was the youngest, so that was a very personal movie for Ford. You can't believe it was filmed on a back lot because it has this wonderful, just wonderful sets. Yeah, the mining village was built in Malibu. Yeah. That's always crazy when people point that out to you, that this amazing Welsh mining village was uh, somewhere 20 miles north of downtown L.A. And very authentic extras. It will be a movie that will always sadly carry the burden of being the movie that beats Citizen Kane for Best Picture. At the time, that wasn't an upset because Citizen Kane, while a success with critics, was a failure at the box office. And that was that was Ford's third best director, because the second best director is Grapes, Grapes of Wrath. Wrath. Yeah. Okay. But if Orson Welles had to lose to anyone, it would be John Ford, because... It's almost an honor to him, lose to John Ford. They once asked him, what are your three biggest influences? Who are your favorite directors? And he said, oh, I like the old masters, John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. There's a How Green Was My Valley story about Ford that I love. You know, Ford was notoriously complicated. Many people talk about how sensitive he was. Clearly, he had to be to make the poetic films he made, but how he covered that up by just being awful to people sometimes and a bully and he would never admit that film was an art. He would always say it's a job of work. And yet he would, in moments of 
vulnerability or when he was feeling comfortable and frisky, he would reveal what a reader he was. He'd reveal what an art connoisseur he was. He'd and he was a languagist also. He spoke many languages. He spoke many languages. He would reveal, he, he hid his intelligence and his artistry and his sensitivity, maybe out of necessity, to survive in the Hollywood studio system. You know, you couldn't go around being like, I am an artist in the 1930s <laughs> and 40s in Hollywood. They'd kick you to the curb. In a way, if you wanted to just make movie after movie, you just have to be like, yeah, give me the script. I'll do it. What do you want me to do? <laughs> There's a story and how green was my valet i love to tell where there's a beautiful shot where maureen o'hara marries the wrong man maureen o'hara is in love with a reverend walter pigeon and for whatever reasons they don't act on their love so she marries a different man and there's this wonder where she comes out of the church with the man she's married and they get into a cart and the wind picks up and it blows her veil and everybody's standing like it's a funeral, not like it's a wedding. And then in the, the background, you see the reverend in shadow come out of the church. He's just married them, but he loves Maureen O'Hara mm -hmm. and he stands and watches them go and it's all done in one shot. And the story goes that Ford at that moment put his fist up in front of the camera and he said, we're moving on. And someone was like, do you want to get a close-up, this and that? He was like, no. If I get a close-up of the Reverend, they're going to cut it in. And so he said, we're moving on. That's it. And Ford would notoriously not shoot coverage, would not shoot the close-up because he knew that Zanuck could then cut that close-up later on. And he would put his fist in front of the camera. Now, to me, the lesson isn't that's what directors should do. Most directors, in my opinion, should shoot that close-up. Most directors should do it because you're not as good as John Ford. What blows me away is that John Ford was so good that he was editing in camera. I mean, for people who are filmmakers, you just need to let that sink in for you for a moment. He was editing in camera. He literally was making it so that the editors could only cut the heads and tails off the shots. And that was only one way to edit the How Green Was My Valley. That's nuts. It's a beautiful movie. Just a few more speed rounds, my darling Clementine. Oh, one of my all-time favorites. Um, probably my second favorite of Ford's. It's a very interesting meditation on the post-World War II era of filmmaking because there are uh, three other directors who uh, served in World War II, two others, uh, the others being uh, William Wyler and uh, Frank Capra. There are others, but these two others, these three, they, in 1946, they each made movies that year, a year after World War II ended. Uh, Ford, of course, My Darling Clementine, William Wyler with The Best Years of Our Lives, and Frank Capra with It's a Wonderful Life. Each movie is a meditation on the hardship of life, the suffering, and the deaths one faces, but also why life is worth living and the beauty and joy that still is there. The best years of our lives is my favorite Weiler. It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite Capra. Yeah, I know it's cliche to say that, but I have to agree with those two. And My Darling Clementine is one of my top five favorite Fords. I have this rule, it's it's dumb, but it's it's a rule that if a filmmaker made, let's say over 30 movies, if I can name five that I think are all-timer, Stone Cold Classics. They're one of the greatest filmmakers ever. And Ford is one of the few directors, along with Hitchcock and Kurosawa, and I may might be able to name someone else, who I can name seven or eight. Billy Wilder? Billy, uh, you know, let's see. Not I, quite for you. Well, no, no, I love Wilder. Let's just do that. My favorite Wilders from the beginning would be Double Indemnity, Ace in the Hole, Sunset Boulevard, Some Like It Hot, 
the apartment and uh, one, two, three. Actually, yeah, I, I love one, two, three. I know some people don't. Oh, but. I love it. I would also add five graves to Cairo to that mix. Well, there you go. But I, I got to six on Wilder. So Wilder is one of them. And you got to seven. With Ford, we're going through them, but I think I can name eight or nine Ford films that I think are all timers. We just saw My Darling Clementine here at the theater. And I love that almost all of it takes place at night. I love, I love my darling Clementine. Okay, um, Fort Apache. Oh, I love Fort Apache. It's a wonderful movie about community. I have tried to capture that movie, and I will try to capture that movie. Just the sense of place and people and their relationship to it, whether it's the buildings, the families, just the ground in that movie. You feel this relationship between everything and just the, inter- the simple interactions between the people. It's very similar to Renoir also. Ford Apache is such a insightful movie because for two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it, it's as you say. It's about this community at a fort. And no one's really all good or all bad, even the Henry Fonda character who's clearly a stand-in for Custer, who, you know, if there is a bad guy in the movie, it's Henry Fonda. but More of an antagonist. More of an antagonist. But you still feel for him and you understand why he is the way he is. But at the end of the movie, he leads his men into slaughter with this battle against Native Americans. And Ford makes clear throughout the picture that it's the Americans who are in the wrong, not the Native Americans. And what's so funny in that movie is that John Wayne is kind of the voice. He's the guy who understands the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, he's playing Irish Catholic in that movie, unlike his other films. Right. And he's he's sort of saying to the Henry Fonda character, who's like a Custer stand-in. The wasp. The way... I wouldn't say it that way, but you and I are just going to have to ping pong on this one. All I would say is the John Wayne character, who is the second in command, is saying to the Henry Fonda character, who's like the general of the U.S. Cavalry, and who's very, he just wants glory and he wants to force something. He's saying, look, these Native Americans, they're good people. We have a treaty with them. We have an agreement with them. You can't do what you're doing. You can't do it. And when Fonda leads them into slaughter, it's really Wayne who pulls back the rest of the cavalry. And the only reason the Native Americans don't attack the rest of the troop, I think, is out of respect for Wayne a little bit and for the fact that Wayne's pulling them back. But there's that amazing shot where the Native American uh, chief plants the flag and the dust just consumes the oh, cavalry. Yeah. But what that Native American leader is doing is he's sparing the lives of the rest of the cavalry. And he's saying, I'm not going to do to you what you did to me. I'm going to spare the lives of the rest of your men. And then, you know, there's that great coda where the journalists are asking John Wayne to talk about Henry Fonda, and he won't speak ill of him, even though he made a horrible decision, a horrible military decision. And I always point to people like, think about making that movie in 1948. (laughs) Think about making a movie that is explicitly critical of the American military and of the American government's treatment of Native Americans and the way that the narrative of the West had been portrayed in the 40s. Think about making that. You know, you were talking about a present, what's it called? Presentism. Think about making that movie in 1948. That is a progressive film and a dangerous film. And who made it? John Ford. John f***ing Ford. Okay, Wagon Master. Oh, Wagon Master is wonderful. Also a movie about reflective of post-World War II mentality that Scorsese talked about in his Criterion Top 10 of directors meditating on the meaning of life. It wasn't just Ford, but also Kurosawa makes uh, Rashomon. He makes Ikiru and Seventh Samurai, which show the hopefulness of life. Jean Renoir does The River, which also shows the meaning of life. 
uh, Vittoria De Sica does Umberto The Bicycle D. Thief and uh, Miracle in Milan are great meditations on that. Roberto Rossellini does Europa 51 and the Flowers of St. Francis. And uh, Kenji Mizoguchi does um, Ugetsu and Sancho the Bailiff. It's very interesting to see Ford recapture those themes again and through a Mormon community, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, totally. And, but they're like uh, his stand-in for ostracized Americans. Yeah. Also, there's a scene that I've always found very interesting where one of the bad white men rapes a Native American woman, and he's put to death for it. The movie explicitly condemns his behavior. Again, 1950, and in that movie, Wagon Master, I was reading, that was Ford's veiled comment on McCarthyism. The thing that I heard that was hilarious, and this was very John Ford, because he's very Irish and very subversive, was he made Ward Bond, who had named names and was one of the rah-rah, you know, kick all the communists out of Hollywood. He made Ward Bond deliver a monologue about tolerance <laughs> as a Mormon elder, talking about how Americans needed to be egalitarian and just and not judgmental. That was very Ford. And Ford uh, wrote that. He just didn't take credit for it. He wrote the story to Wagon Master. Okay, moving forward. Mr. Roberts, even though he didn't entirely finish the movie, he shot most of it. It's very interesting. It's a comedy about uh, Henry Fonda, who's the head of this Navy ship, I think near Hawaii or the Philippines. I am embarrassed to say I've never seen Mr. Roberts. Really? I know. It almost feels like a precursor to the novel of MASH, where you have these uh, individuals in a war area, and it's about all their shenanigans and them trying to hook up with women. So you almost feel the author of the novel of MASH, who I don't remember the name of, you almost feel that... He must have seen that movie. And he was like, I'm going to do funny. I'm going to do Mr. Roberts in Korea. Yeah. It's a very funny and surprisingly touching movie at the same time. Great performances from veteran actors like William Powell and James Cagney. And it's Jack the best Lemons, performance right? is Jack Lemon, who won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. As Ensign Pulver. Oh, he's fantastic in it. That's wonderful because there's some Fords that have slipped through the cracks for me, and Mr. Roberts is one of them. Uh, we've already touched on Quiet Man, which is another one of my top five favorite Fords. I'm obsessed with that movie. It's why I paired it with The Searchers. I love the poetry of it and the humanity of it. And I always point out to people, you know, this is what makes cinema cinema. Is there two sequences in that movie? I can't really explain, but they're so cinematic. One of them is the very famous when John Wayne discovers Maureen O'Hara in his cottage in the wind and he grabs her e. and kisses her. E.T., of course. E.T. quotes sequence. it and she slaps him. But it's done without any dialogue. And there are these shots where the camera tracks in here. She sees herself in the mirror. It's just pure cinematic poetry. And all this complicated stuff is basically the fact that these people are going to fall in love and get married is communicated without any dialogue in this incredible cinematic sequence. The other one is when you finally see John Wayne's flashback to when he kills the guy in the boxing ring. Oh, yeah, which inspired Scorsese with one of the boxing sequences in Raging Bull. And it's just a cut. When people talk about editing... That's one of the most amazing cuts in all of cinema to me is suddenly you're in Ireland for an hour and a half and then suddenly you hear this bell, ding, 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 and it cuts to this close-up of John Wayne. No dissolves, no push-ins. Nothing, just, just cut. straight up close-up to him with all these flash bulbs on himself in a boxing ring and you're like, holy moly, that's cinema. Okay, so uh, Last Hurrah. Oh, I love Last Hurrah. That's one of my favorites. Uh, very interesting story about that movie. It's, of course, about... An old Irish Catholic, East Coaster, running in Massachusetts, played by Spencer Tracy. He's running for mayor of his town again. 
and he's kind of being run down by this younger politician. TV politician. It's about the rise of television. Very interesting. Um, I first saw the movie in 2012 on election night. So I was feeling pretty good watching the movie, knowing uh, that uh, Mitt Romney didn't win the election. Barack got a second term. Yep, I was glad about that. 2016, four years later, I was re-watching it, and that sense of defeat and melancholy in the <laughs> autumn air that you see depicted in the movie really got to me just the night after the election results came. <laughs> you were just feeling melancholy? Oh. I was feeling terror. Oh, no. I, also that, just a sense of number of feelings. And I remember that night. I think I think anybody who lived through 2016 who was not a fan of Trump, you were like, I can't believe this is happening. Then I rewatched it uh, around the election time of uh, 2020, and I was feeling better then. <laughs> anyway, okay, A Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Oh, I love Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. It's a less showy film of his, but also like The Searchers, it's an unmasking of the West. I think a film that you could compare it to is Martin Scorsese's The Irishman in 2019 about totally, a man totally. recalling what happened and telling you what really happened. And you're getting together a number of veteran actors. Very interesting that James Stewart and John Ford were big in the 40s and late 30s, but they had never made a movie together until 1961 to road together. So this was their second movie together, which was surprising. It took them that long to work together. And very similarly, The Irishman has Al Pacino, and that was the first time Scorsese and Al Pacino had ever worked together, despite emerging around the same time. You also have a lot of their common actors in both movies, Robert De Niro and John Wayne as the main characters in both movies, and, of course, Joe Pesci, Andy Devine. And yeah, I was going to say Andy Devine returns uh, Vera again. Miles, Vera Miles. Yeah. And you see a lot of the similar faces. In, Isn't John Quaylen in that one? Yeah, I think he is. Yeah. And then a the lot of similar faces the in uh, The Irishman, like uh, Harvey Keitel. Oh, and then the wife of Al Pacino was in Goodfellas. Oh, yeah. And of course, Paul Herman, who died earlier this year, is in it. Yeah. So very interesting. Both movies are about looking back and the ugly histories that we really do have as people, sort of the hidden secrets that we have. Very interesting. Sergio Leone's favorite John Ford Western uh, was The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance because Leone said he learned pessimism with that movie. But <laughs> I think Leone's generalizing there. There was always something a little dark in Ford's films. In the final shot of this movie, it is about the new civilization and the railroad that you see that Jimmy Stewart was always emphasizing. And if there had been a railroad early on in the movie, he never would have been through that town, so none of it would have happened. So in The Man Who Shut Liberty Valance, this sort of progressive culture that we have is really founded on violence and betrayal. And then in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, the final shot is after, uh, spoiler alert, Henry Fonda is killed. They are now building a railroad track. So... Very similar idea as to what John Ford was doing in Manishat Liberty Valance. That's such a great place to wrap it up because, of course, Leone would take up the mantle of the Western just fistful of dollars is 64, the same year Cheyenne Autumn came out, which is Ford's final Western. You wouldn't argue that Seven Women is kind of like a Western in China? A little, yeah. But I get what you're saying for sure. But it's funny that, and I love what you just said because Leone would then take the Western. You would almost think that Ford had pushed the Western as far as it could go with searchers. 
But then he pushes it a little further with Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. In the same way, and I love what you said, that Scorsese, you kind of would be like, well, he can't do anything more with the gangster picture. And then he pushes it a little bit further with the Irishman in a beautiful way. And then, you know, three years later, you get this Italian director who suddenly does something with the Western that, you know, is going to influence Tarantino and influence everybody. So there's there's that great through line that, anyway, I, I'm just repeating what you said. I'm repeating, I'm, I'm basking in your brilliance, which is bullshit. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to just agree with you and say, great observation. I love Liberty Valance. I find it to be, it's a summation movie where I feel that Ford is making a point in that movie, which is inarguable in a way, which he's saying, where Jimmy Stewart's character and Jimmy Stewart's playing a politician, ultimately he becomes a senator, Ransom Stoddard, where the country goes, because the movie also is about this wild territory, which is initially run by outlaws like Liberty Valance who intimidate people and rich sort of land barons. And over time, the immigrants and the marginalized people form government and then vote for a representative, and that representative is Jimmy Stewart, and then Jimmy Stewart goes off to Washington, D.C. Ford seems to say that this progress is a good thing, but it's much more complicated, and ultimately it was protected by a man of action, which is John Wayne, who is forgotten by history. And Ford seems to say to me, our progress forward as a country is something to think about. But it has been messy, dirty, violent, and the people who helped it along the way are sometimes not the people we remember who get put in the history books. I think as a statement, it's a very powerful statement on the many contradictions of the United States. And that there's a psychosis, too, in the United States, as represented by Liberty Valance, played by a dope Lee Marvin. <laughs> oh, one of the best villain roles ever. Yeah, who just wants to intimidate people that he feels he can intimidate. could talk another hour about Ford. I could talk all night about Ford. We could open up the whiskey and just go movie by movie. But uh, <laughs> I hope, audience, you will watch John Ford films. American cinema is built on the back of John Ford. That's not overstatement, in my opinion. John Ford picked up where D.W. Griffith left off, carried us into the modern era. We are a great cinema because of John Ford and many other people. But he is he's one of the he's the Abraham Lincoln of American cinema. I hope you'll watch these movies, decide for yourself. But John Ford was a poet, is a poet. His movies are poetic. They are human, they're humanist. They're brilliant cinema, but they're also very clear-eyed and honest. And that's what I want out of my cinema. I do share a very similar uh, point of view to that. Also, uh, when you watch some of his movies, watch the late Peter Bogdanovich's 2006 documentary, directed by John Ford, to really get a sense of who he was. It's a wonderful documentary with interviews by Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, Walter Hill, and uh, Clint Eastwood. When I met Peter Bogdanovich uh, several months before he died at the New Beverly, I told him how much I loved that documentary, and uh, he was very moved by that. And I even told him that uh, the movie that I'm trying to make is partially influenced by John Ford, and he liked hearing that. Well, I hope you make that movie. Yeah. <laughs> I look forward to seeing Patrick McElroy, the next uh, filmmaker and line of filmmakers influenced by John Ford. So God bless John Ford. 
And thank you, Patrick, for doing this. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be on. Thank you. Audience, you know the drill. Uh, you want to see what we're doing, go to secretmovieclub.com. If you want to write us, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. This podcast, as always, was edited by Chief Creative Content Officer Connor Lloyd Cruz. And our next podcast is going to be Defend This Movie Number 10, where I will be defending my love of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom with the person who started the whole Defend This Movie sub-podcast, Steve Grest who said had the idea for Defend This Movie because I loved Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Steve thought it was horrible. And uh, we did the first Defend This Movie number one, which you can revisit if you want to. And now Defend This Movie number 10, Steve's coming back because he thinks that Temple of Doom is a mess and he wants me to uh, defend it. And uh, that'll be our next podcast. So uh, until next time, uh, have a great week. And again, I just want to say thank you, Patrick. You're very welcome. Love you, family.